I don't know how many of you know Rick Warren, but every Sunday he wears a Hawaiian shirt and he's got 20,000 people, so I thought, <laughs> we're, well, we're well on our way. You just keep inviting them. I give my life to the potter's hand. As we talk a little bit about our text today, I think that song that prepared us to hear God's word prepared us well, because I think it's what one of the disciples called by Jesus chose to do, to give his life over to the potter's hand. This year I had to file an extension, no good excuse, I just had to file an extension, and it seems like just the mention of IRS, you know, just think about it a moment, what thoughts kind of come to you, and it's probably beyond thoughts, you probably get this little knot in the stomach, you know, is it things like joy, happiness, is it things like, oh, contentment or compassion, are those the words that come to your mind, IRS, Mm -hmm. Probably more like intimidation, resentment, bullying, fear of an audit. Steve Forbes, uh, several years ago, ran for the presidency, and one of the planks that, uh, of his platform was going to be a flat tax, to initiate a flat tax and to abolish the IRS. And his popularity uh, made a sharp rise uh, for a little while, and then it plunged. <clears throat> but even we who believe that we should be doing our fair share paying our fair share of the taxes to get the benefits that our government provides for us, we're often resentful of the faceless bureaucracy that requires us to, to, to work from January until mid-June just to pay off that tax debt, our fair share. And so taxes, the IRS, they don't typically evoke warm fuzzies in our thinking But imagine if your IRS agent worked on a commission. Imagine for a moment if his take was based on how much he could squeeze out of you. Well, you see, that's how it was in Jesus' day. Tax collectors got a piece of the action. And even worse, they were usually fellow citizens, so therefore viewed as collaborators and uh, with the um, occupying country. And they were despised, despicable people, uh, and many people's view even lower than the lepers and other outcasts of of the culture of the time. On the upside, tax collectors often had beautiful homes, the latest model camel in their Camelot, and uh, lots of nice things. But the downside was that they were rejected. They were vilified by most people. Uh, kind of outcasts, and at least lepers had a colony of lepers in which they could fellowship, uh, but tax collectors had no one. Then comes Jesus. Let's pray and invite God to reveal himself in his word this morning. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts truly be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Our rock our Redeemer, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, To me, this is a very compelling story amongst all the other stories of Jesus calling his disciples. 
True, the others, Peter, Andrew, James, John, in chapter 1, left everything, uh, but I have a hunch that they didn't love their nets and their boats as much as Levi loved his money and nice things and well-off living. And why would I say that? Well, to choose to be a fisherman didn't make you a social outcast, didn't make you a reject. People didn't, other than I suppose when you were fresh fishing, uh, fixing those fish and gutting them and so on, for the most part, people would hang out with you. It was an honorable profession of the day. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were never respected members of their community. Uh, they were a pariah, basically. And to choose the life of a tax collector was to choose a life ostracized and lonely, only a person who lusted after wealth and nice things would be able to identify with them. I saw a license plate surround on a car here uh, a few months back, and it said, I want to be, be Barbie because she has everything. And I think a lot of us are kind of stuck in that mindset in our culture. In verse 14 of our text, it says, As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Did you see it there? Jesus comes along, sees Levi sitting in his tax office, and he says two words, just two words. Follow me. What a sales pitch. You know, I know exactly what I'm getting into if I say, yeah, I'll follow you. And yet that's exactly what Levi did. He followed Christ. No apparent hesitation. No seeming pause, no delay, and at least that comes out of the text that we have this morning. But I couldn't help but wonder, I couldn't help but think a little bit, could a man so obsessed with material wealth and the good life, could he really walk away from all of that at just two words from Jesus' mouth? Do you think that Levi may have Perhaps pondered this before? Such an invitation that might come along the way sometime? But had always managed to suppress it, to push it down, to keep it inside? It would come up, but he managed to push it back down and rationalize what he was doing. Levi may have often had a longing to do something different, to be something different. And when Jesus came by and looked at him, the overwhelming longing overcame him. And Levi realized, by golly, I've got to do it. It was his longing to be loved, to be accepted, to be able to function in society. He longed to be accepted. He longed to belong. And isn't that a longing of most of our hearts? We want to belong, we want to be accepted, we want to be loved, we want to be cared about, we want to make a difference. And so Levi gets up and he walks away from everything. And we have no reason to believe that he ever went back, nor that he ever regretted that decision of following the Lord. And I couldn't help but think, many of you probably view stewardship, or at least the discussion of stewardship, like tax season in the church. The only difference being that we don't have, to, uh, have or at least use the kinds of methods to persuade people to cough up the money that the government employs. We can't put a lien on your soul. 
Purgatory worked well in the Middle Ages, but hasn't worked and had as much zip for us today. You can't impound my prayer life. Basically, no way to coerce you to give to your Lord. You see, we believe that we just teach what the Scriptures say, but ultimately stewardship is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of this person that God made you to be and purposed for you to be. And it's a matter of your relationship with God. It's the Holy Spirit of God that works with you. Some puzzling statistics. They say that 61% of regular churchgoers, I don't know what they mean, their definition of regular is, but of regular churchgoers don't give regularly. And they give less than 1% of their income to their church. On the other hand, 80% of the church budget is carried by 15% of the people. 80% of the budget, 15% of the people giving that. Now, we as Americans, we're joiners, you know? I joined the YMCA and extended my membership so it covered down here so I could get all this great exercise that I don't take advantage of. I just pay the monthly dues and I feel a lot healthier. (laughs) But basically, the YMCA, no pay, no play. You know, it's kind of the way it is. And it's true almost anywhere that you turn in which you're a member. The golf club, the reading club, the bridge club, the rotary, the Kiwanis. It doesn't really matter what it is. Why? Because you expect to pay. It's your organization. It's something you feel a passion about or something that you want to participate in and you want to benefit from their cause or their purpose. And so like Levi, hoarding our profits, so protective of our stuff, we want more and more. And you know, the Ten Commandments have something to say about that. They say that we shouldn't covet. We need to learn how to live a life where enough is enough. Many of you, and somebody just mentioned they're moving and going through the process of downsizing. Many of you have done that or are doing it or anticipate doing that. And downsizing is hard for us as Americans. We love our things. We really love our things. And what we want is a 200-square-foot house to pay utilities, taxes, and everything on that have about uh, 3,500 square feet of possessions. And that's the way some of these adult communities look when you walk into a room. They have all their favorite things there. Enough is enough. And we end up tossing chump change at God like a beggar on the street to kind of ease and solve our guilt of what we maybe should be doing or what God might want us to do. What we need is a verse 14 experience where Jesus says, follow me. And we simply leave everything behind and follow him. Allow him to not only be the savior of our life, freeing us from sin's bondage, but also the Lord of our life to help us with each and every day to live for him and for his purposes. Jesus saw Levi as a potential disciple rather than as a tax collector, a scumbag in the community. And so he said, follow me. The savior sees sinners He sees them as persons of worth, and he socializes with them. As Jesus walks up to the booth of Levi, or of your life, or my life, 
He sees us as he did Levi. Our potential, our value, what he purposed, what God the Father created, knit together the DNA of our being. Not as an outcast, but as created in God's image. God's image. And he says, follow me. Not just when it's convenient. Not just when it's easy. Not just partly. Not just part-time. But rather, follow me as a lifestyle. As a way of being. As how we look at life and live life out. And we need to, as Levi did, to get up. Away from our comfy life and all our temporary ties to this world. And follow him. A living sacrifice to be willing to leave it all behind for Christ. I've realized over the years of preaching and teaching stewardship that it's nothing really that I'm going to say about this topic that will make a change in your life. It's only as Christ comes to you, comes by your accounting table, and says to you, follow me, that things will change. Levi was set free. And in verse 15, we see the natural response of someone who is liberated, set free. Did you see it? It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with them and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It just became a gathering, a magnet. Because you see, people do want freedom from that bondage of things that tie us down. And so he invites all the outcasts to a party, and Levi says, come, come on over for dinner. And he proclaims, God accepted me. God will accept you. He will accept you and set you free to a new life in your Creator God. And then in verse 16, And the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the covenant pastors, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they, I asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, along come these religious people. They observe the scene. They're the religious fault finders because you're not doing it exactly the way you're supposed to be doing it. Let me show you and tell you how to do life. You can sense their contempt and their disgust over what they see. This disgusting crowd gathered around this Jesus. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he hang out with these rejects, these social outcasts? And just picture it for a moment in your mind. Levi and his friends catch wind of the Pharisees and their accusatory questions of the disciples. And all the eyes now turn to Jesus. Because they're waiting to see what's he going to do. How's he going to respond? How's he taking this? Probably each of them formulating, if I was Jesus, this is how I would deal with it. How many times had other people disavowed them, abandoned them? When the pressure was on, they were forsaken and alone. How many times have you abandoned the disenfranchised of our culture because the popular crowd frowned on your friendship with them? I imagine there was this kind of deep silence as every eye was on Jesus. And in verse 17 we read, 
on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. For the religious leaders of the day, it would have hit them between the eyes. I mean, I as a covenant pastor, I know exactly what Jesus is saying. Why do you need a doctor if you are well and life is going well and you're making all your religious appearances and all your practices so apparent to people around you? The doctor is only for the sick. Oh, tell me something I don't know. I didn't come for the already righteous, for those who think that they've arrived spiritually because they've done so many Bible studies or been in Christ for so long or attend so regular at church. I came for the sinners. I came for those that know that they have not yet arrived. That they certainly aren't there. That they need something beyond themselves. I came for the sinner. In Romans 3.10 it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. No one, not even one. Coming from the Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest missionary of all time. Not one. In chapter 3, verse 23, it says, All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We're all in this boat together. None of us is better than another. Or in 6.23, where it says, But the gift of God is eternal life. In other words, there is an answer, a solution. There is some place to turn. There is something new that can happen in your life. And much of the religious righteousness of the day was self-righteousness. It was man-made Only God's grace can make you truly righteous. You see, every one of us is sin-sick and needs the doctor, needs Jesus, the healer, the mender of our brokenness. There is no one more firmly entrenched in sin than those who don't think that they are. They don't see it. The self-righteous, the holier-than-thou, the church type, religious folks who look down their noses on, uh, and these wretched people, the outcasts, the rejects. We don't really have place for you in our, our, our circle of friends. That kind of attitude emanates even if they don't put words to it. Why do you hang out with that kind of people? And Jesus says, that's who I came for. I came for you who don't think that you need me. Well, there's a gentleman, I'll call him Alvin. And I met him at a downtown church or out in front of a downtown church. He was just coming out the doors. And, and he looked obviously dejected. And, and I just asked him, you know, hey, how's your day? And he said, well, he says, I was just told that I don't fit in here and not to return. And as I talked with him a little more, I invited him to our church. I said, you can give our church a try. It's one of those times when as a pastor you kind of say, oh, I hope and pray my church will be on good behavior. (laughs) And he came. And then he came again. And again. And people loved him. He did not feel like a tax collector, a 
amongst our people. And I don't believe that he would here either. But for some of us, it's still a struggle. We still have this battle inside and we have this dialogue going on with Jesus. Do I have to love this person? They're so different than I am. And Jesus says, yes, in my strength, in my love, you will love these people. And I look out this morning and I thank God for all of you. I thank God for all of you because we have all kinds of people here. We've got rich and we've got poor. Those with jobs, those without. We've got tall and short. We've got young and old. We, we have different skin colors. We have bearded and unbearded, and I'm praying for you, unbearded. <clears throat> thank you. And, and I pray, brothers and sisters, that we are always a church for the Alvins of our world. The Levi's of our world. Because that's what we're to be about. That's what our Lord was about when he walked this earth and set an example for us. We are in the business of saving the wretched of the world. We are to draw into Christ the broken, the despairing, the hopeless, the lonely, the outcasts of the world. Let me just give you an example Men's ministry is praying and thinking about this coming year and will we do another men's life? We did it last year. We got a little bit of a jump start, but we had a long way to go. And the question will be to each of you as men is, will you commit yourself? Because men in our culture are in trouble. They're in a tailspin. They're failing on marriages. They're failing in their parenting. They're failing at their jobs. They're struggling with life. One of the things we're going to do is move it to a different time so that some of you can come that Monday night was a conflict for you. Uh, I wonder if you'd be able to take your Connect card and to write on that, hey, you can count on me. If there's any way I can be there, I want to be there and be support. I want to reach out to the Levi's and the Albans of our community and to show them that God has a plan for them to make them count in their marriages, in their families, in their workplaces. And then I'll invite somebody to come with me Would you be willing to commit to that? You can just jot that on the Connect card, turn it in in our offering. Or our adult ministries team is looking at small group ministries, and we've got a lot of small groups in our church. But a lot of them have been going so long, you know the people well. And not that that's bad or anything, but we want to do some small group ministry that is an invitational, it's a doorway into God's greater family and our worship celebration. And to be a part of small groups that are inviting other people to come in. And we're going to be doing training, both for those that are already small group leaders as well as those that God might be touching their lives to check out. Is this something that I need to get trained in? So this fall, you'll be hearing a lot more about that, and we'll be doing some training. Just asking yourself the question, what would Jesus do? Who would Jesus invite? Not just have it be a holy huddle of a few. And thank God... That at any given church meeting, we have the weak, the strong, the rich, the poor, the cool, and the not-so-cool, the young, the old, and may it ever, ever, ever be so. May you be the one that will go sit with the guy all alone at the picnic table in the park or at the school lunch table at school or the workplace. And in the end, that's what stewardship is all about. 
It's to give of your life, your time, your energy, your ability, your finances, to make sure that we have enough seats, enough ministries, enough caring, enough facilities, enough opportunities for the people who feel on the outside of God and what God is about. People who feel that they might want to come in and to check out their Creator. The last few weeks we've seen the common people in Mark chapter 1 and and chapter 2, a paralytic, his four friends, the tax gatherers, the sinners, the disciples, the lepers, and had a way of seeing because they viewed Christ as healer. They viewed him as friend. They viewed him as Lord, and their faith was rewarded. How willing and capable are you of seeing beauty and value and goodness and other positive qualities in those who differ from you, those who aren't just like you? Generally, are you an affirmer or a criticizer? And we could go on and on. Let's pray. Lord, today, let us see people and circumstances from your perspective. May our hearts be broken by what breaks your heart, Lord. And Lord, thanks that you did not choose to leave us on the outside, but through your Son, Jesus Christ, provided a way in which we can come to you. You took us in the way that we were to make us what you want us to become. Lord, thank you. And as we take our tithes and our offerings, Lord, may we give our lives anew to you. Commit ourselves to your will, to your purposes for which you created us. We pray this in your name. Amen.